Well, good morning. With a warm and hearty good morning. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Perhaps you have heard about the pop quiz. Uh, maybe you've even experienced those in your life. If you're still in school, maybe you've experienced one recently. A pop quiz is generally a test of smaller length and smaller importance, and it's sprung on you. It gets sprung on to unsuspecting and hapless students. Uh, usually those quizzes are regarding content that the student should have learned recently, and it's, it's usually a test to see if a student is slacking or paying attention or tracking along. Uh, but notice that those are pop quizzes. There generally aren't pop tests, much less pop exams. Uh, and there definitely, and thankfully, aren't such things as pop board exams. Uh, why? Those kinds of tests, exams and board exams, those are substantial and really should be prepared for adequately. You can fail a pop quiz and you know you'll probably be fine. But a failed pop exam could mean that you would have to take a class all over again. Uh, nobody wants to be caught off guard on matters of great importance and great consequence. Uh, on matters of great importance, you really want to be able to prepare yourself, at least to some extent. I believe that's the kind of mercy that our Lord Jesus Christ is showing us in passages like Mark 13. Uh, he is telling his disciples and us about future events. Uh, God's people will face great testing. He doesn't want any generation of his people to be caught off guard by trouble. Let's resume our reading here today in Mark 13. Pick up in verse 14. We're going to read down through verse 27. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather the elect, his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Let's pray. Father, we cherish your word. We cherish the parts that are uh, clear and make total sense to us. And Lord, we cherish the parts that we have to think really, really hard about. 
I pray that you would help us as readers of your word to understand, that you would give us wisdom as we struggle through your word at times and, and try to discern what you're saying and what you're telling us, Lord. I pray that you'd grant us humility and clarity and joy in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the main call for us here is to not be caught off guard. Don't be caught off guard by hard times ahead. In verse 13, we have seen Jesus's, or in these first, the first 13 verses of this, we've seen Jesus's uh, prediction that the temple is going to be destroyed. Remember, they're coming out of the temple. One of the disciples says, wow, look how great this building is. And uh, look at the stones. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And Jesus says that there's not going to be a single one of those stones on top of another. Uh, Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed. And he also predicted hard days ahead. He spoke about deception, uh, wars and rumors of wars. Talked about earthquakes and famines. He even talked about persecution for his people. And as we considered those verses previously, I argued that the prophecy related to the destruction of the temple has been fulfilled. In 70 AD, that temple was destroyed. And I argued that the troubles that are discussed there, uh, they have been partially fulfilled. We see those kinds of things in generation after generation uh, and leading forward and pointing forward to a, a great climax that we're going to be considering in the passage here today. Uh, so the, the troubles that are there, uh, Jesus uses the phrase of birth pains. They're like the contractions that come and go. And throughout the history, uh, since the time the Lord has ascended to heaven, that's going to happen. Persecutions, challenges, they're going to come, they're going to go. They're going to come back again, they're going to go again. And it's leading uh, to the great push uh, at a future time. And so I think Jesus is talking about some of that here. And in verse 23 of our passage, Jesus says, Be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. So, so I think the main point here, we're going to drive home something, is that we would take guard, that we take heed, that we'd listen to the words of Jesus and be prepared in our hearts. We want to prepare our hearts in light of the things that we find in these verses. And that could be said certainly of the entire chapter, but we see that here. There are at least four things here in this passage that Jesus informs us about and that he tells us to take heed regarding. First, he says that there will be an Antichrist. We'll see that in verse 14. There will be a great tribulation. There will be a great deception. And Christ will return to set things straight. Those are the four things that I see in this passage. And then I want to return to the call to prepare our minds and hearts for that. So verse 14, Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he'll continue there, but we'll stop there. In Mark 13, 14, Jesus speaks of an abomination that causes desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now That's the way that ESV puts it. Your translation might say, instead of where he ought not to be, might say where it ought not to be, or something like that. It's the it, it there. I do think the ESV gets it right here. Uh, in the Greek, 
the one who is standing is in the masculine case, the word that's behind that in the translation. Abomination of desolation is in the neuter case. So I think it, Mark and Jesus here is referring to both the actor and the action. I don't think it's just the action itself that's referred to here. There is a figure who will cause an abomination. He'll perform an abomination that will cause desolation. The idea of desolation here is a, a defilement of a holy place. Uh, that the best Greek lexicon has that uh, as, as a definition for that. Uh, I think Jesus is here talking about a figure and an act and the result of that act. Now, who is the figure? Jesus doesn't name him in Mark 13. Uh, there's a lot of things, in fact, that, that we find in the Bible about the future that uh, aren't all mentioned here in Mark 13. So we're going to have a selective study, but I do want to cover what's here at least. Jesus doesn't name this figure here. Uh, instead, he speaks about his action and the result. And this is a clear reference to Daniel chapter 9. In fact, if we were reading Matthew's account, Matthew also includes that Jesus is here referencing uh, the prophecy in the prophet Daniel. At the end of Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel is discussing the 70 weeks, there he's putting that before us, uh, the last verse of the chapter says, And he shall make a strong covenant, speaking of a figure, with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So again, we see a figure, and he is one who makes desolation, but he will be destroyed. Uh, so there in Daniel, we see the figure, an action, and the result. Uh, I think Paul, the apostle, is referring to the same figure in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4, to when he's encouraging the Thessalonians. They've been concerned. Perhaps they have missed the coming of the Lord. Uh, they're anxious about that, and Paul is encouraging them. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4, to he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So here is a man of lawlessness, who's going to stand up in the temple and proclaim himself to be God. Now, I understand that this is the same figure as what we see in Revelation 14 in the description of the first beast. Uh, I think that all of these references refer to the same individual. I understand him to be an actual person. and I, The phrase, the term that's often given to him is the Antichrist. John speaks about the Antichrist and many Antichrists. And this figure... The things that he, he does, the acts he performs, the results of that acts are, are put before us here, at least in a glimpse, by Jesus. Uh, I do believe that the Antichrist will proclaim himself to be God from the temple in Jerusalem. It's described in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Uh, and I think that would then be the abomination that causes desolation. That's the desecration of a holy place. Uh, now, if that's accurate, then I think it would require a rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, seeing as the last one was destroyed in 70 AD. So the first thing Jesus informs his hearers about, and us, is the coming of this figure. He's going to commit an abomination that will cause desolation. 
That desolation will defile the holy sanctuary that he stands in. Now, I think we get pointers to this figure, who I understand to be still future coming. I do think we get pointers to him as we look at history. In the 2nd century BC, we have the the, uh, Seleucid branch of uh, Alexander the Great's generals as they break off. Uh, you got a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. His name Epiphanes means the manifestation. He understood himself to be God incarnate. And in his war against Israel, he goes over, he takes over Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar in 167 B.C. So I think in many ways Daniel may be pointing forward to that kind of an act. Uh, I, I think Antiochus Epiphanes... He is a prefigure and a pointer forward. Uh, there's somebody who's coming who is going to resemble him. Even as we look at the time following this prophecy and the destruction of the temple, uh, we see a man like Nero who understood himself to be God and blasphemy against God. Uh, there are ways in which Nero fits some of the data here. I think, again, though, like Antiochus Epiphanes, I think he's a pointer forward. He's the kind of figure. The Bible discusses many antichrists. Uh, there are basically anybody who stands up to oppose Christ fits in the line of antichrist throughout all of history. But I do understand one who's yet forward, uh, even forward from us, who will be the antichrist. And the reason I believe that he's a figure who is still future to us uh, is that in 2 Thessalonians, Paul describes the undoing of this figure when he comes to an end. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So the parousia, the Greek word there, that is associated with the return of Jesus. When does this Antichrist figure come to an end? It is at his coming. And so I would see in somebody like Antiochus Epiphanes or Nero pointers forward. I would see pointers forward in men like Hitler, men like Stalin. I think they're pointing forward to someone who is yet to come. Uh, And and so that's the first thing that we see here. Jesus is describing for us uh, that there is a figure who will be opposed to God. Uh, And then... uh, I've spent a lot of time there, but there's just a few words about that. What's described more, I think, here in verses 14 to 20. The second thing is that there will be a great tribulation ahead. Verse 19 refers to the tribulation. uh, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. I think that's why it's called the great tribulation by many. Uh, It will be the absolute worst time in human history. I don't think this is merely hyperbole, like Jesus is saying it's going to be really bad, but it's actually not going to be the worst time. Uh, I do think he means it will be the worst. Uh, Although there will be global dimensions to this time of persecution, as we see in Revelation, Jesus speaks here directly to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, particularly, excuse me, of Judea. Uh, after the act of abomination that causes desolation, Jesus tells those who are living in Judea to make for the hills, to get out in a hurry. Those living in Judea need to flee for their lives. In 
Israel, they don't get nearly as much rain as we get. So they got more flat roofs. And we hear stories in the Bible of, for instance, the paralytic who's let down through the ceiling. Uh, there would have been access to the ceiling generally from the outside and from the inside. Jesus says that when this trouble comes, don't even waste the time to go down the staircase into the house to grab something on your way out. Hit it. Go. Uh, he tells them to flee. Flee to the mountains for their lives. Uh, if you're in the field, he says, don't go home and get your cloak. Uh, he says further that you will not want to be pregnant in Judea in that day. You don't want to be slowed down by anything in your retreat. Seems to be what Jesus is saying here. He says as well that uh, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Uh, the winter months are less hospitable for those who are fleeing, less food in the fields, and uh, maybe harder terrain to go. It brings us then again to verse 19. In those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. The tribulation in that day will be so great that it's going to surpass any other period of tribulation and persecution. Jesus describes the intensity in verse 20. He says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, if you read about the cataclysmic events in the book of Revelation and match that with what's said here, then I think you could imagine why Jesus says this. Uh, there is going to be a great persecution for those who belong to Christ, and there is going to be great judgment poured out by God on the earth. And if that were to continue on and on and on, then there would not be a single person left alive on earth. If the intentional persecution of God's people were allowed to go on and the Category 5 hurricane of God's wrath did not stop, then there would be nobody left. But out of pity for God's people, uh, it is brought to an end on his timetable. It's not for pity on God's enemies here, but pity for the sake of the elect whom he chose that causes God to bring an end to the, hor the horrible turmoil going on here. If he had not shortened the days, there would be nobody left. I think it's important to point out God's mercy on his people here. Uh, even though this passage is talking primarily about events that are future to us, uh, I think that we should not miss the ever-present reality that God cares for his people. Now, you may understand uh, the elect here to be simply Israel. Maybe you understand the church to be gone during the end times. Uh, maybe you understand that to refer to both Jews and Gentiles, everybody who believes in Christ. Uh, however you see that being interpreted here, the reality is we do see that God cares for his people. However you're defining the elect here, God cares for his people. And the care that he has for them causes him to shorten the days. That care that he has, that love that he has, uh, that's true at that time, is true today. Your current suffering is not the suffering of the great tribulation. But God does care for you in it. He may allow it for a season for some good reason, but it will not last one day beyond what he knows is good for you. So endure it faithfully while it lasts today. It will not last forever. I think in light of this, the Lord is calling us to be prepared for at least the possibility of suffering for Christ in our day. It may not look like the Great Tribulation, but we might still experience suffering for Christ. 
Uh, Certainly Christians are suffering for Christ today. I think in India right now, there's a rash of persecution going on uh, against Christians. In Burma or Myanmar, the government is cracking down on the Kachin and Karin Christians there. Uh, This happens. Jesus promises trouble for his disciples. And we want to be prepared that we might suffer for the Lord in our day. Beyond that, we see a third thing Jesus says here is that there will be a great deception. Verses 21 to 22. And he says, And if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. We've already seen in verses 5 and 6 that many are going to come in the name of Christ, saying, I am he. Uh, Here we see a multitude of false Christs and false prophets who are going to perform signs and miracles. They're going to be be performing signs and wonders, and in that they're going to lead people astray. It will be so convincing that if it were possible, and evidently it's not, but if it were possible, they would lead even the elect astray. We live in a very pragmatic and practical day, at least in some senses. I had a conversation with an atheist once who argued that if God were real then all God had to do was prove himself to him. And then he would believe. Uh, He argued that if God really wanted him to believe, then God could prove himself to him. And then he would believe. But until that point, he's not going to. Now, I hate to say it, but if you reject God's word and hold out for something more, I can't promise you anything from the Bible that says that God is going to come to your terms and meet your demands. But there is a kind of logic behind that that says, I have to see it to believe it. Uh, When the day comes that there are false Christs and false prophets performing signs, especially the false Christ and the false prophet, Revelation 14, I think there are going to be a lot of people who are deceived. There is something very appealing about the promise to see tangible results and signs and wonders. I think that many, even in a secularized Western culture, if they saw somebody performing an astonishing feat, they would be enchanted by that. Uh, They would be prone to follow after that kind of person. And the point for God's people is that they must not go chasing after any figure who would come and seek to draw them away from Christ. Uh, There will be many people, truthfully there already has been a lot of people, who will speak falsely on behalf of God, be a false prophet, Uh, and who will put themselves forward as the person who needs to be followed. Uh, We must guard against these kinds of deceptions. Uh, It's going to be false Christs who come from below, uh, and that's who they are. They're not the true Christ who will come from heaven. So that brings us to verse 24 to 27. Uh, The Lord will return as he's promised here. I want to read those verses again, verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. As I just mentioned, Christ, when he comes... The second time, he will come from above. Uh, In Christ's first coming, he came in humility. He was the Son of God, born of a woman. Uh, Love has come, as we just sang a bit ago. Uh, He took on our nature, made from dust. Uh, In one sense, 
the first coming of Jesus in that he joined us in coming from the ground up. Now, yes, John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 51, describes Jesus as the bread that comes down from heaven. So he came down from heaven even the first time. But the first time he came, he took on our form. We are creatures made from the dust, and to dust we return. And in Jesus taking on our form, in some sense, he came from our midst. Uh, He came from the ground up with us, in that sense. Uh, But that's not how he's going to come the second time. Uh, First time he came humbly. He came to take our sin upon himself and to die for us. Uh, He came to save us. When he comes the second time, he will come from heaven. He will come visibly into this world. He will come in victory and judgment. He's not going to be coming again to pay for sins. When he comes again, he will come to receive this world as his rightful inheritance. After the great tribulation, Jesus will appear in the skies. He went up on a cloud in his ascension, and he is returning on a cloud when he comes back. He will not be coming in meekness and tenderness, but he will be coming in great power and glory, as Jesus says here. It will be an utterly epic moment. It says here, that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I think that this kind of language points to the fact that when Jesus returns, all of creation is going to be straining under his glory at that moment. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his glory, will brighten the skies. There won't need to be a sun and a moon to give light at that time, because he will light up the skies. I think the sun and the moon would be redundant at that point. Jesus describes stars that are falling. Is that potentially meteors that are coming? Some objects striking the earth at that time? I I don't know, uh, but we see some description here that there's going to be a great uh, tumult, a great shaking of the heavens. don't know exactly what all of that means and exactly all of what will happen on that day, but it will be a day of immense change in this world. In so many ways, the world that we now live in was changed radically by Christ's first coming. When Jesus came the first time, he changed so much about the world that we live in. Uh, Certainly for us, he is our hope, and that changes everything for us. But the impact of his first coming changed a lot of the world. You think about Western society. Of course, now we're getting far from the, the Christian roots that we had, but the gospel made deep impacts there. Uh, when Christ comes again, absolutely everything will be changed. There will be nothing that will be the same after he returns again. Now, I understand that after the return of Jesus, when he comes back, uh, at that time, then he will set up a kingdom on earth. He will reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem here on earth. Uh, That's not in the passage here. I won't go too much into detail there, but that's how I understand things happening. At the end of that, is a final rebellion we see in the book of Revelation. And then after that would be the final judgment and uh, the eternal state from there. Uh, the last thing I want to point out this morning, I want to come back to verse 23 again. Jesus says, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Uh, Jesus' desire and his command is for us to be on guard. We'll see a similar command next week, in fact. He'll say even more there. Uh, We should heed the words of Jesus here. The testing of hard days 
should not be like a pop quiz for us. We should not be surprised or caught off guard by the coming of hard days. Whatever challenges the Lord allows us to experience in our lives, we should be prepared in our hearts for that, and we should rely on his love to carry us through them. Even if the Lord does remove his church before the worst days of the tribulation, uh, and that very well may be, if he does do that, know that we may still face challenges. The birth pains that come upon this planet for those who follow Christ have affected generation after generation of Christians. We might find struggles. I'm sure that all of us right now have challenges in our lives. Uh, This season of walking with the Lord is hard. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be caught off guard by difficulties. The Lord has told us that the days ahead will be hard. We want to be ready for the Lord's return. And today, I want to encourage you to seek him uh, in your heart. Be ready for him. Walk with him faithfully today. Receive him for salvation. Walk with him, and you will be ready for whatever comes your way. If you have not trusted in the Lord yet, then I encourage you to turn from sin and to trust in him for salvation. That's how you will ready your heart uh, for his coming. We will continue next week. Uh, We may be finishing this passage up this next week, uh, but we'll continue in the Olivet Discourse as we come together again. So let's pray. Father, thank you.